Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm excited to present this episode with Kevin Fitzgerald. Many of you may remember that he was my second guest ever on the podcast way back in, I think, March of 2019, maybe February, actually February of 2019. And uh, he's been here for four years as assistant conductor with the Alabama Symphony Orchestra. And he's going to move on to associate conductor of the Jacksonville Symphony. So we thought it might be kind of cool to just talk about his time here and how to prepare as a conductor, just kind of get a look into what he's been up to. So before we get into this episode, I want to take a second just to say two separate things. Number one, I wrote an ebook all about auditions and how to prepare for them, how to incorporate deliberate practice, how to get some of the mental game down for peak performance, how to write programs so that you have a specific step-by-step -step program to follow for your auditions, and just generally how to think about the audition process. This is something that I think can be beneficial for all musicians. It's pretty philosophical and organizational, so it's not just specific to trumpet players. Uh, if you're interested in that, I'm going to leave a link in the description for you to click on that so you can see what that's about. And if you end up buying it and you read it, uh, then go ahead and schedule a free 30-minute meeting with me so that you can get your specific questions answered. I think that's the cheapest way for you to go about getting the full sort of picture of the information about how this audition organization information would be relevant to you. So I'll leave a link in the description. Go ahead and check that out. And I also just want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. A little while back, Houghton Horns sent me a box C-190 C trumpet, a Shires 4S8 C trumpet, and taking those two C trumpets along with my own C trumpet, I played a whole bunch of excerpts back to back to back and put them together in a video that you can listen to to kind of hear the differences between these three horns. And so if that's something that's interesting to you to hear these differences and kind of formulate your own opinion, I'll leave that link in the description as well, and you can check that out. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today is going to be a pretty cool episode for me. I'm here with Kevin Fitzgerald, the assistant conductor of the Alabama Symphony Orchestra. Uh, and Kevin is going to leave us this year, and he's going to start next season as associate conductor of the Jacksonville Symphony Orchestra. It's a huge opportunity. Uh, we're all excited for him to take this next step in his career. Many of you who have listened to the podcast for a very long time will remember that Kevin was, I think, my second guy. I think it was Demandre and then you, and you were brand new to the job. And so Kevin thought, we were talking, and he thought it might be kind of interesting to share some of what he's learned in the past four years and sort of just reflect on this period where he's at to see where we might be another four years from now. Um, and so 
hopefully this will be kind of interesting for all of you to listen to and hopefully pick out some things and some lessons that might be applicable to you as well. Before we get started, thanks for joining me here, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's awesome to be back and trumpet brethren <laughs> in this world, a former trumpet player. So yeah, it's always good. So I thought it would be cool to just start with sort of um, what it looks like, I guess, to be an assistant conductor and the process of getting opportunities so that you can continue to learn and kind of get your name out there and just what that's like and how you kind of practice being a conductor and then um, you know, how we move through getting from where we are now to I'm ready for these opportunities and I have a portfolio and all that kind of stuff. What does that look like? Right. Well, um, the way I've thought about answering this would was in the context of just general improvement, which I know is something that you're really big on with the gold method and just like how do people get better at things. Um, so I think developing as a conductor kind of it's a very multifaceted process. It's not just music. <laughs> There's a lot more that goes on into being a conductor. Uh, so I kind of broke it down into uh, three main categories. And the first is uh, perfecting your musical fluency. You know, music is a language. And as a conductor, you're expected to be one of, if not the most fluent person in music in the room, depending on the context. Um, obviously, you know, when you're dealing with professionals, everybody has their own connection to language, the language of music and all of that. But I think, you know, there are just so many basic skills that conductors must be fluent in. And, you know, from just singing pitches and rhythms to playing the keyboard, playing your instrument, learning new instruments just for fun and to understand how they work. All of that stuff, nuts and bolts. Can you sing this melody at sight? Can you sing this rhythm at sight? Can you memorize a, a melody after a couple hearings? Um, just basic, like the muscles, the muscles that you use for the job. Um, you can improve your analytical skills. You know, how quickly can you do the uh, harmonic analysis? How quickly can you identify the phrase structure? Um, those kind of things. And then there's the physical part of that fluency where you're talking about your physical technique with your, uh, which I'll talk about a little later with, you know, uh, watching your videos and stuff. But, you know, working on improving your uh, ability to respond physically to the music. Because at the end of the day, Choreography is not our job. Our job is to allow our body to transmit in real time not only what we think should be happening, but also to take in what's happening from the musicians. It's like you're a conduit. You hold space. So that's kind of the first, the, the musical part. The second part I, I called psychological development. Um, conducting is extremely, ex, uh, extremely psychological. Uh, you are, you know, there's that phrase, know thyself. Mm -hmm. And that is a lot harder than it sounds. Yeah, for sure. Especially when you are going from a, maybe one chapter of your life from your 20s to your 30s. Um, I think a lot of people experience a lot of personal growth. I mean, the pandemic for, forced so many of us to look inside and work on ourselves. And, um, you know, in order to lead, you have to be honest with yourself about your strengths and your weaknesses and your motivations. Like, why am I doing this? Uh, because all of that, if you are blind to that, it's going to blind you from what's really happening in the room. And like uh, delusion is runs rampant among a lot of conductors. Mm. Um, <laughs> sometimes it can be good. Like you're, you, you're so committed to your ideas that you kind of, you're, you're like delusionally confident in a way. And that is actually can be good. 
Um, um, I have found a one to one relationship with my musical development and my personal development. So if that means working with a therapist or a coach or developing a spirituality or spiritual practice, like the further I go down that path, what, you know, one of the cool things about being a younger conductor and a staff conductor, not the music director, and in the stage of career that I am, I'm not on the podium every week. So, but I am on the podium regularly enough where I can feel my the changes um, between. Sorry, that was my phone. It's all right. <laughs> um, I can feel the changes between, you know, one, if I'm on the podium once a month or twice a month or once every other month, whatever it is, um, I can feel the differences in my personhood, like mm-hmm. how I feel when I'm conducting my confidence. How calm am I? Uh, how do I react when the musicians say or do something I don't expect? All of that, I can feel because I'm not doing it every single day. I can really feel the benchmarks so I can speak to that. Um, and you know, that psychological aspect, I really believe the conductor holds the space for the musicians and the emotional content of the music. So like you should be open, like openness. I think, you know, if you think about what a conductor is, you know, it's something that electricity moves through. Mm. It's something that things move through. Yeah. And so like, if you're closed off in any way, I mean, it's not like I'm perfect and I've worked out all all my issues, but you know, I really think that that is so integral to becoming a good leader of any kind. Um, uh, so, uh, that spaciousness can so easily be clogged up with, you know, personal baggage and trauma fears and expectations. Um, you know, all of that. And then I think the third aspect, uh, is, creating, seeking, and maximizing opportunities for you to conduct because you really can't develop into your potential as a conductor without opportunities to conduct. And so, um, you know, the things you do in your musical practice and your psychological uh, practice and your, your just your personal growth, all of that needs, you need an arena to try that out, right? Like I just said. um, And when you do get those chances, whether it's a concert or a chance to do speaking or just you get to step in for a rehearsal, whatever, making the absolute most of those. And um, this is something that, you know, a lot of you are, um, you know, when I was a trumpet player, I would always listen to record myself and listen to my practice and take notes. And that would inform my practice the next day. I mean, we all are familiar with this process and it's very hard to do that as a conductor because you can watch your video and make a list of all the things you want to improve. But in terms of uh, feeling, developing the, the sixth sense to feel how you're connecting to the ensemble, and, you know, I asked Giancarlo Guerrero once, music director of Nashville, you know, how do you know if it's the musicians or if it's you? Like, is what is happening with the music because of what I'm showing or is it because they've decided to do it? And he really, he said, you just feel it when you feel that connection. You know, mm. you, you can't really, there's no way to measure it. You just feel it when it happens. So, you know, some things just take experience. And I know that's a really frustrating thing to tell someone who's, you know, young and hungry and maybe just coming out of school. But um, you just have to conduct. You have to find a way. And this is a whole nother skill set that we can talk about to get opportunities to conduct. And the higher the level, the better. I mean, I remember um, after my 
when I was living in Houston before I came to Alabama, I had a, a meeting with Larry Ratcliffe, who teaches at Rice, and everybody probably knows who he is. Um, great conductor, teacher of conducting, and he basically just told me, "You're doing everything right. You're on the right path. You just have to conduct better orchestras more often." Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is like, how do I do that? Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it was a very simplistic, quasi-frustrating answer, but he's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, anyway, that those are kind of the three. You ask me, like, how does a conductor improve? How does a conductor grow? What does that look like? I mean, those are kind of the three pillars. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot to sort of dig into. Um, one of the things that comes to mind first is in the second point you meant, but just sort of being honest and that it's like this, you're like this conduit. Yeah, I, and you were saying... <laughs> I just think anything works the best this way. There's a book I read called Crucial Conversations that I think about a lot. I don't remember anything about that book other than this concept of the pool of meaning, where if you have Ooh. this discuss, you're having this issue and you're trying to work through a problem, like one of the best things that you could possibly do is just get everybody's opinion into the pool of meaning and then see like kind of what you're dealing with. And so I kind of like that with the conductor. You're bringing your very best. The musicians are bringing their very best. And then it's your responsibility to sort of okay, what's like, what's here? What do I have here? And how do we shape it into something? And uh, I, I kind of like that perspective for sure, because you're sort of respecting the fact that we all have ideas and thoughts. We're there for a reason. We're not just sort of robots, which sometimes you can feel with certain conductors. It doesn't matter what you think. All that matters is mine and what I want you to do. But it your sort of view on it sounds like you're trying to take that in as part of how you then will shape the final product so it's kind of a collaboration i like that approach pool of meaning who <laughs> i'm good. taking that one i gotta i gotta read that book yeah i mean yeah at the end of the day you don't make a sound the end of the day you don't make a sound so yeah you can have an idea about everything and frankly you should have an idea about how everything should be played and when it comes to things that must be unified it's your job to say okay we're actually going to play it like this right. i'm really sorry you don't actually apologize. That's a that's a number one rule. Don't apologize to an orchestra unless you really messed up. Yeah. Uh, uh, but you know, have you have to go through the process of 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 how is this note going to be played? You have to. That's what that's what you're figuring out half the time when you're studying. You know, like we're doing Beethoven nine this week. Scherzo, B section, half notes with carrots on them. How is a half note with a carrot? It's not a short note. But there's a carrot. So does it full I value with an accent? Is it a dotted quarter note with an yeah. eighth rest? Does it have an accent? Is there a decay on it? You know, it's you have to decide that. Yeah, it's interesting because I haven't seen that in this particular instance. It's kind of the same thing I feel like I'm dealing with where I'll like put my best foot forward because I don't see something like that very often. Having a conductor that will like hear that there may be some discrepancies and say, that's a weird marking. This is how I want it. It's super helpful. You know, where you've made a decision, you just say, this is my interpretation. Exactly. And, you know, uh, my teacher at Michigan, Kiesler, he would always say, most of the time, it doesn't matter what you decide. It matters that you've decided. Totally. <laughs> There's nothing more annoying to a musician than, you know, sometimes you have to just admit, I haven't thought of that. I'll get back to you next rehearsal. Yeah. And you got to be honest about that. Don't BS because... They'll smell it from a mile away, <laughs> and it probably won't bring a very thoughtful result. Sure, sure. And you really don't want to backpedal. That's just a waste of time and credibility. But, you know, that's your job. I think, you know, as the more experience you get studying scores and looking at pieces, you the things that are up for, up, up for grabs become very obvious to you how something's going to be paced, how, how this note should be articulated, because 
you know, a great musician who's good enough to win a job in th- this day and age, or even in the last 20, 40 years, they want, they want to sound good. They want to sound unified. So it's not really even personal. It's just like, we don't even really care what your idea is so much, as long as that we know how it is. Now, if you have an extreme, you know, fringe idea, you better have some good proof to back right, it up. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, those are just nuts and bolts things. And if you if you can't spot that while you're studying, like you got to figure that out. Um, you know, the, a great way to practice it is to just open your score and put your close your eyes and put your hand, your finger down on the page and whatever it lands on, you have to come up with a sentence and how it should be played. Mm. It's Whether it's yeah. p- play that, that those should be full value yeah, or, you know, a slight decay. Uh, after the attack or, you know, lagatissimo or crescendo, like you should be able to describe, you know, and if you can't, then good, good luck. Like you figured out something, you figured out what you need to learn. Well, knowing what you need to know is like everything. Well, and that's a question I was going to ask you. And you, <laughs> you sort of, you, what you just said is a sort of another tangential part of this conversation, but you know, from a deliberate practice, I th- from what I understand, deliberate practice is like the best way to get better at anything. And so deliberate practice, one of the main tenets is you need regular feedback on your efforts. And so that's, you sort of spoke to this and maybe you want to expand upon it. But when you're on the podium once a month, or if you're someone who doesn't have a job, where you're on the podium even once a month, and you're just seeking out these opportunities, obviously recording yourself and watching back is going to be great. But are you a how are you able to essentially milk the way you get feedback from an opportunity, knowing that you might not get another one for a little while, as opposed to I could record myself every day in the practice room. I can get regular feedback that way. Like, what are ways that you use your you you sort of watch your recordings, and then you're thinking, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and then how do you let, let that stretch until the next time you're able to get feedback? Does that question make sense? Makes sense. Yeah. So, I will admit, there's a difference between how great your video looks and how effective you're being and effective. I don't mean in a, you know, you did a good job. It's, are you having an effect Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the orchestra? Are you having an effect? So, um, some of my most effective conducting is not necessarily what I'm going to send on a video audition submission because it does maybe doesn't, is not the most emotive or it's not it's not the most musical or it's not the most uh, I'm looking down more than I would like. You know, uh, uh, I can tell at this point in my life in my career and development when I give a gesture, if it doesn't have an effect or not. So to me, when I'm talking about improving, I am hopefully prepared enough that I have enough mental space available to be listening enough to have a consciousness about when I offer a gesture or an idea musically, physically first. You can tell an orchestra to do anything. Newsflash, it's better to show it. Sure. No one wants to be told, that should be softer, that should be shorter. Talk if you have to, but no one came to listen to you talk. So uh, no one came to rehearsal, I mean, or the concert, you know. I think you got what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I'm constantly, and I think over time, like especially at something like last summer I was at Tanglewood, you're conducting every day for at least an hour with really great players. So that was a masterclass in figuring out what's effective and what's not. Because when you do something and it has no effect, you immediately know. Right, right. 
And there's the, the more data you get about what does have an effect, it's like the contrast becomes stronger. Well, and that's kind of the idea behind feedback. You could say it's data, like the, what feedback gives you is data. And then you just think, is that what I want? Like, and so also what I like about what you're describing too, is like half of the battle is developing even what you want in the first place so that you can compare what's happening against that. Oh, absolutely. If you don't have a specific enough, uh, opinion or uh, interpretation or concept, the whole game is off. Yeah. Because that's really what it comes down to because otherwise it's just whatever. Yeah. I heard it. Uh, I heard a, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm, you know, faultless here, but that's what I'm trying to root out of myself when I'm working with the score. Um, making my idea more specific. You know, MTT had a interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air maybe like three years ago. And he talked about like the problem with classical music is making everything distinct because it can sound to the same, especially to a non-musician audience. Yeah. You have to find a way to, you know, turn it from a black and white painting to a technicolor painting. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the Wizard of Oz, you know, you don't want it to be black and white. You want to turn the color on. So, um, Again, it, it, you do kind of have to have the cr- that's where the creativity comes in because you can't just, you know, make up something that's not in the score. You can't do something crazy. Um, the musicians won't be on board and it probably won't work because you do have to honor the composer. But you also have to think to yourself, like, um, what is what is the notation? This is another MTT thing. What is the notation telling me that the composer wants? Yeah, like. And and lifting it off the page more than just, oh, it's a crescendo from piano to forte or something. Like, be more poetic about it. That poetic element of how you want it to be played. You know, you hear it all the time with with instrumentalists, like the story they have about the piece or the words they use to describe the sound they want. I mean, it all applies to conductors times a million. Yeah. Because if you don't have a specific enough concept, this is what infests the gestures. This is what makes a conductor always look the same. Because there's a disconnect from their imagination and their body. And I guess if you really come down to it, that's really what I'm doing when I'm trying to prepare, when I'm working on my craft is obviously I need to have good skills to arrive at the conclusion of this is how I want it to sound. But then the work is how do you get your body to connect with that emotion? And as the more experience I get, that highway becomes much more, the speed yeah. limit goes up and I can get there faster. Oh, it's so cool too, because like you're describing an equ- like I don't want to call it an equation, but it's almost like an equation. It's like you try a gesture and then you see if that gesture causes the thing you're looking for. And then when you, when you don't hit it, you're like, okay, I'll try something different. But when you do hit it, you're like, okay, now I kind of know if I do this with my body, it creates this result or this sound. Ideally, if, you know, all things being constant, which it's not, of course, every orchestra is a little bit different. Right. But that's how practice is. That's like the best way to think about practice, in my opinion, is I'm just trying this thing and seeing what the result is. Once I get the result I want, I don't really have to overthink it. I just do that same thing again, and hopefully I'll get the same result. Exactly, which is why I think over practice, I think conducting is more of a highly informed improvisation. It's much more like being an actor where you memorize the lines and then you ruminate on what the character is going through. And then when you're actually on stage, there's a whole room of unknown. Yeah. When you over practice and I'll put an asterisk on this and come back in a mirror or whatever, you are closing yourself off to the response uh, cycle, 
where, you know, it might look good to you. It might look musical. It might even look really musical or beautiful or whatever. But if it doesn't land you and you don't respond to that, if you just keep doing what you practiced, man, it's going to be frustrating and people are going to be very, very confused. Yeah. Um, if, if there's supposed to be something happening in the music that's not happening and you just keep doing the same thing over and over again, well, you've lost a lot of credibility there. Now, uh, the asterisk is certain things you have to practice. <laughs> you have to practice the sacrificial dance. You have to practice even just um, <clears throat> classical period rap and when it comes to phrasing. You have to allow yourself the chance to go through it and simulate performance. Yeah. And tr- I guess that's really what it is. This this infinite personality, not personality, possibility, infinite possibility space that you have to live in when you're really performing. It's like you have to learn how to cultivate that by yourself. And I found that I've only been able to really get better at that the more that I've it's like it's a place that I go just like anything. If you've only been to a place once, you're probably going to forget the directions, but mm-hmm. you go there every day. You're going to remember how to get there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. So, yeah, it, it's a lot of that. And so because it's so abstract and psychological and not really, oh, if I just conduct through this piece and give all the cues and show the dynamics, I'm going to be a successful conductor. No, it doesn't work like that. You have to you have to be accept the fact radically that what you're doing is there's an alchemy to it. And some people there's some things that just are not explainable mm-hmm. with a book or even a teacher. Like when I'm coaching my clients, I'm leading them to this place that I can't actually point them to. Yeah, yeah. Ah, it's so fascinating because like, I mean, I'm just trying to filter what you're saying too through like the lens of a musician. Like how could, what what would that mean for me? And it's very similar, I think. Like you gotta, you you have to come with some formulated something. Like you have to be prepared. But at the same time, that's not really, this has one, been one of the biggest struggles for me in this gold method thing is like I've pulled so much from weightlifting. Yeah, <laughs> I've pulled so much from weightlifting. But weightlifting is very much like a, like a technical thing, right? Like you're learning like a motor pattern and it's strictly a motor pattern and the better it's ingrained, the more success you have. But the thing about music is there's this extra thing about it, which is the music part. Like you certainly need to have command over your instrument and that you could totally view as a motor pattern. Just like I have consistency and efficiency with the way I produce sound. But then there is that element of music that's on top of that. And it sounds like to me that's what you're saying. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying like there you have to come prepared with your ideas and at least have done your best to this is the gesture I'm going to give, but then be open to that gesture could be wrong if it's not creating the ultimate result when I'm actually with other people. Right. And maybe not wrong, but just not specific uh, enough yeah. or like uh, usually things are too general. Mm. Like, okay, that's the, I can, I can see you want more. It's really more, uh, and this is an acting thing. Um, it's not doing it's being so doing is the music's happy. So I'm going to smile. Being is (laughs) I'm going to find happiness. Sure. Sure. And I'm going to look however I look when I'm happy. Right. I mean, this is some woo-woo stuff. Well, it's it's but what it is, It's though, really yeah. what it is. And it's like, it's the same thing. Like, when you listen to a player who knows that the music is supposed to sound happy, but inside they're a, uh, a nervous wreck, <laughs> <laughs> they're 
there's going to be a disconnect. Sure. Right. Yeah, totally. um, and I feel like, yeah, I mean, what you're saying about mastering the instrument, I mean, there was many, many years where I practiced my patterns in front of a mirror. And uh, in high school, I had a teacher who said your upbeats need to be straight. So practice against the door frame so that you can your muscle memory can be trained to bring the baton up straight. Right. You know, you have to <clears throat> excuse me. You have to do all that. But it's all if, if you stop with that, right. which is where a lot of unfortunately uh, conductors who who don't get into maybe working with professional musicians, they, they go the academic route or which I'm I was about to do before I got this job. You know, I'm not against it um, when getting it right is the end goal versus making something happen, transforming someone's life through what you're performing. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the difference. It's like um, the music, you know, I talk about the, your personal relationship to the music and this place that the music, like it's almost like you're creating a, a place in your imagination. Like this is what, you know, okay, we're doing Beethoven nine. This is what the opening of Beethoven nine is to me. It's like we're out in space and it's the solar system. And, you know, nothing exists. It's just blackness and stars and like the the planets are forming or something like it doesn't really matter what it is. But like that's the place that I'm trying to bring all the musicians and all the audience members. Yeah. It's like and all of the information, like everything is backed up by this score. Right. So you could you could have five or six different pictures of what that opening of that symphony sounds like. But it's all because the way you would describe the place that you're in relates to the musical content, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a multi-sensory thing. Um, and I'm telling you that you could, I mean, and this is why you see sometimes great conductors who are not trained in conducting. They might be had a couple lessons or you see, you know, especially in the old paradigm, a lot of soloists like Rostropovich would become a conductor or, Lots of examples, great performers, they become conductors because the act of conducting is actually not that complicated. The physicality. Now, maybe some people would disagree, but compared to playing an instrument at a concert level, it's it's a little it's pretty simple, uh, simple, not easy, but it's the intention. What are you trying to say with your conducting yeah. that they learn from being artists? Yeah, well, and I love what you talked about showing and not telling that's what i'm when i'm learning about like videography and sort of filmmaking in general like i just sort of have a casual interest in this um that's a huge rule in filmmaking is showing and not telling like if you can show what someone is feeling and not just have them say what they're feeling it's the impact is 10 times more exactly exactly kurt mazur has a quote that says if you tell a musician to play forte they'll play with their mind if you show them, they'll play it with their heart. That's nice. Yeah, that's a good quote. Um, I think we should move on to yeah. th that. Was a beautiful. I, I, there's there's a lot in there, and I hope I hope. I mean, obviously, you're filtering this through through the lens of a conductor. Um, and it's all so, the same. Yeah, but it's all the same, and so hopefully, those of us that just play you know a single line for an instrument can still pull away so much of what what Kevin's talking about because it's like the ability to win a, an orchestral audition or the ability to separate yourself as a musician. There's so much wrapped into that thing too. It's like sort of that extra layer that some players quote seem to have. Uh, but really, it's like they've mastered the technical craft, or at least they have enough of a grasp on it that the, it allows them to sort of leave some of that behind and enter into that next step, which is, you know, the the musical or the artistic step. So I think there's so much wrapped into there. I hope a lot of people were able to take from that. 
Let's talk first about, if you don't mind, just kind of taking us through the Jacksonville audition, like what that was like, what you had to do, and then um, feel free to reflect on, you know, your time here and the lessons, and maybe we'll have a little conversation about that. Sure. Well, I kind of wanted to lead us into uh, an audition for the people that listen to you that are conductors or might be interested in conducting about how you kind of get invited in the first place. Great. Because the first thing with one of these, there are two types of searches ones that are open that you can apply to and ones that are closed and it's done behind closed doors um and it's done through reputation recommendations from people like yada 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 um so for an open one you have to send you know your cv a cover letter i'll get all get to all that but in order to even get considered you have to build some kind of credibility right which i think this kind of applies to any job any field where it's highly competitive and it's not necessarily a pure meritocracy. Maybe you or your your listeners would disagree, but I think a blind orchestral audition is pretty close to a meritocracy as we can get. Mm-hmm. There's obviously flaws with it. It's not perfect, but be, there are no blind conductor auditions. It's one of my favorite jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in order to kind of break this down. I'll try to go as quickly as possible sure. there. You have to, you have to make peace with the fact with two things. Life isn't fair. <laughs> Once you accept that you don't take all the rejections as personally, mm-hmm. right? So life isn't fair and there is a hierarchy in the arts world, whether or not you want to admit it, there is, and it's probably every industry, but you have to do what you can within your control to make or get opportunities that are, higher than the current level of a credit of credibility that you're on, right? So if you don't have a job yet as an assistant conductor, you have to try to find a way to conduct an orchestra or put an orchestra together for something that is kind of on the level of an orchestra that you would want to work at, right? So if you, you know, are a high school orchestra director and you want to make that leap from education to performance, you can't send in a video of your high school orchestra. You have to find a professional orchestra or you have to find a way to get professionals to play for you and make a video, right? It has to be at least on par. And this this goes for beyond your first job. If you are trying to get a better job, the video can't has to be on a level that the organization feels is on the same level or above. So this is just how it works. There are always exceptions. There's luck. Connections play a big role in all this. And people get huge breaks sometimes that are unexplainable. Yeah. Um, uh, You know, connections can help you, but they can't help you get much further than the, the, the place you already got yourself. Does that make sense? It might get your foot in the door, but you may not make it much further past that point. Exactly. Exactly. And it has, it has a lot to do with storytelling. Um, uh, you know, what kind of story can the people that are going to hire you tell about you? Right. And how does that align with their story? They're trying to tell about their organization. Mm-hmm. So if it doesn't line up, they don't see a connection, right? So, um, it doesn't have to be higher. It can just be close. Even just try to get, uh, uh, again, radical honesty, Ex- assess where you're at in terms of paper on paper, not where you personally feel you are artistically, but on paper mm-hmm. and be like, okay, what's how can I get one rung higher or two rungs higher in terms of my portfolio, what I've done, where I've conducted the projects I've conducted. You know, I didn't get, for those of you listening, I didn't get invited to an assistant conductor audition 
I graduated college in 2015 for my master's. I didn't get invited till 2018 when I got my first job and I didn't, I had one other audition this year, which was uh, Utah symphony in the fall, which I wasn't hired for. And then the next one that I was invited to after a lot of rejection this year was rough, despite all the good things, you know, the next audition I got invited to was Jacksonville and I won that job. Yeah. Can I, I want to jump in here for a second. Cause from a completely different viewpoint, just to sort of, I would say validate kind of what you're talking about, for for me, I have a strong interest in videography. Obviously, you know that. And so I was thinking to myself, well, I just want to seek out projects that are, that will be what I'm interested in doing, you know? So Bingo. I started doing these interview videos because I wanted to learn how to do that. And then I did this dumb video on YouTube recently with Robbie where we're, you know, I want to hike out into the thing because I wanted to learn how would you edit together a video that's more like a like an engaging kind of fun thing, right? And I'm interested in doing sort of a documentary with Adam Pandolfi on just freelancing and then winning the job and all that kind of stuff. I'm trying to basically create the opportunities that I hope someday someone might pay me money for, basically. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> so it's like, they're, I don't have control over somebody doing that, but if I can't show them proof of concept that I could do it for them, how in the world would they ever do it? So it's very similar to what you're describing. And there are some paid things that are, have happened for me in the past like three months or so that after two years of creating and creating and creating and creating. So it's very, it's very similar to what you're describing that there is a level of like personal responsibility or gung ho-ness or whatever, that if you can be creative and think about how could I make something like this happen? And I love that you gave sort of parameters for it too, like at the level that you're seeking, that kind of thing. So it's not just anything you're doing, but you can be really specific and intentional about what you're trying to create, even if it's like a smaller version of something, it can still be some sort of an example to someone who wants to see that you can work at that level. And I'm sure that gives you as much credibility as anything else, like what you're talking about. 100%. Um, once you get, there's a little bit of momentum that happens in all this stuff, which I think would be the same if you were a freelance player in a big city, like, oh, so-and-so played this gig. Well, we should hire them for this gig because, yeah. again, it's credibility, right? Mm -hmm. If you play with the Chicago Symphony one time, every orchestra under the Chicago Symphony is now going to see you as qualified to play with them. Yeah, It's the same exact thing with being a conductor. So, um, you know, there. The, uh, sadly, the classical music industry is not super keen on the, the gatekeepers are not super willing to take chances on new talent. Um, I mean, the conducting industry is, you know, there are just more conductors than there are gigs, right? So, and, the, you know, there's a lot of dynamics there with, you know, with management companies and um, relationships and relationships between managers and orchestras and individual conductors and orchestras. And there's, you know, then there's the programming aspect where we need someone who can do this kind of program. So, you know, the, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of variables. It's, to the point where you actually, the good news is all the stuff I'm telling you, you can't actually control any of it. So you can be aware of it. But at the end of the day, the stuff I told you at the very beginning yeah. is what you, you have to be aware of the game that you are playing, but then you have to rem remind yourself that at the end of the day, the things that I told you about at the beginning are the actual way when you get the shot to nail it. Yeah. Right. So, so back to the Jacksonville thing, uh, you know, I applied, uh, I had to send a CV, uh, a cover letter, Please don't do your CV in chronological order, conductors. Do it by what's the most impressive. Keep everything there. Just if you did one festival, a smaller festival, and you were a fellow, put that at the top. If you've done one project that's 
fancy with some musicians from a big orchestra that you're around, put that at the top. Like you've got to dumb this down. People mm. do not have time to look through 250 CVs, which is how many apply for usually these kind of jobs and and like, you know, s- search through. So, you know, unless you went to, you know, a very prestigious school, don't put your education first. Yeah, right. You got to make it as idiot proof as possible. Not that the people <laughs> looking at are idiots, but you have to make it as obvious as possible about what what level you're at. You, you got to establish your hierarchy. Where in the in the ladder do you lie on paper? Yeah. And I'm coming from someone who has started Alabama Symphony is a great orchestra, but it's a tier three Ixom orchestra. So it's not like, you know, you might be thinking, oh, that's easy for you to say, Kevin. Well, I mean, I just told you for, for three years, almost four years, I didn't get a single audition. So I think I know something about, you know, building myself up from essentially nothing right. in terms of professional credibility. So um, the next round after you apply, uh, it kind of goes two different ways. If it's a music director job, there's usually a round of interviews. So this year I was in two searches for a music director position and I didn't make the finals of either of them, uh, but they were both really nice and want me to come uh, as a guest conductor. Nice. So it was a positive thing. Uh, You won't have the interview round for a staff conductor uh, probably before you get there. So if you're not invited to the live round, they're probably not going to interview you. Uh, When you get to the live round, they'll probably give you a month to learn the rep. They'll send the rep out about a month in advance. Uh, For Jacksonville, I had to also do a programming project where they said, I need you to make, you know, here are your parameters. Here's the 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 types of concerts. We need a classical concert. We need a pops concert. We need an education concert. We need a... um, a happy hour concert and here are the parameters for each and you need to submit them by this day. That's really important, especially if you're, you know, if you're associate conductor, you're doing a lot of your own programming, you are doing your own concerts, you're not necessarily just assisting all the time. And it's not just education. It's a lot more. It's yeah. a lot more. I'm doing a lot more pops and doing a lot more, you know, kind of classical concerts that aren't subscription. And then of course, a subscription concert ballet work, you know, you have to be they have to know that they can trust you to just do what you need to That's do. That's Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, so usually there's two rounds of conducting. So for Alabama, the first round was the the pros, um, which one of the excerpts was Beethoven nine finale. So it was kind of like full circle moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, the pros, and then they made a cut from six to three, and the final three we did the youth orchestra the next day, and you know how that turned out. Um, and then this one was two rounds in the same day. One was um, the first round was just a little more general, like the rep wasn't necessarily as tricky, uh, but still tricky. Magic Flute Overture, um, the Bernstein, Maurice Press, West Side Story Overture, the one that starts with Tonight. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a popular one because it's the only West Side Story music that is uh, double wins. It's not a big orchestra. I see. So you, you can, don't small orchestras can do it. Small yeah. orchestras can do it without hiring people. And then, um, gosh, what was the third thing? Oh, Beethoven five first movement. It's a very standard. Yeah, yeah. Then they did interviews. Then they cut half of us, and three of us were in the finals. Um, and that was Brahms one fourth movement opening, which I also did in Alabama, and Dumbarton Oaks first movement by Stravinsky, which is tricky. Um, much trickier to play than it is to conduct, but what uh, what isn't? <laughs> uh, and then, uh, <laughs> um, uh, oh, Siegfried Idol by Wagner, yeah. which is usually done with like a chamber ensemble, mm-hmm. but this was full strings. It was a really nice chance to just show your musicality and rehearse. You had to rehearse, so and you also have to manage your time well. Like conductors, if you're not good at knowing 
first of all, you got to be able to read a clock. <laughs> uh, which, you know, is something I actually struggled with terribly as a kid, the, like the, the manual clock. I just couldn't remember which, which hand was what and which side, which way you read it. I just, I, I was terrible at that. Those I was horrible. Now I'm better. We have uh, digital clocks too. So yeah, digital clocks. <laughs> um, also get good at counting time backwards. Cause I'm used to the time going up. And this clock for this audition, the time went down and that really threw me interesting. Um, but if you can get through everything perfectly in time, that's a big plus like for both Alabama. The last note was literally the second before the personnel manager said time and same in both rounds in Jacksonville. Interesting. Yeah. So you like used every second available to you. Yeah. And if you can time it, you know, well, yeah, it, it just it doesn't hurt. Yeah. Nice. Um, and then they told me I felt pretty good about it. Excuse me, but you just never know. You never know. I felt good about my Utah audition. Didn't get the job, mm -hmm. so I didn't even get to the interview round. They did it differently in Utah. They had us all conduct and then they invited people back for interviews afterwards, which they only interviewed one person and that was the person that got the job. So um, anyway, so that's that's kind of the audition process. Cool. Yeah. Well, what have you learned? from your oh. four years here. I mean, I'm sure we could have a whole two hour podcast on this, but if there's some big things that you're sort of glad you had the opportunity to learn here and that you'll take forward or, yeah, you know, obviously I'm sure you have certain things you'd like to share, but uh, let's talk about yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things. I mean, I came to this job when I was 28 and now I'm 31. So a lot happens in your life. I think those are very pivotal years. Um, I mean, I just, these are kind of like professional things, but I mean, I'll, I'll they connect to personal things too. That's one of the beautiful things about being an artist as you know, some people complain about not having a work life separation, but I think it's actually healthy because your work and what you do helps you become a better person. At least that's my belief about music mm. is that it, you know, good to talks about that, how the arts actually help you uh, architect yourself into someone better. Sure. You know, this is kind of that romantic ideal, but the first thing I want to share is that integrity, preparation, dedication, it does not go unnoticed. It might not feel like it in the time. No one's saying good job or, you know, it doesn't feel like there's a one to one. The timeline of the benefits to your work is not up to you, but it does not go unnoticed. And people learn that they can either trust you or they can't as a person or as a conductor. And when the orchestra trusts you, the possibilities are endless artistically. If they don't trust you, the the limits are like the Tupperware lid is shut. Mm -hmm. It's you're, you're not going very far. Um, and trust is like a day to day thing. It's, you know, it's not that you have to be perfect and you can't have a rough day or you can't have a rough rehearsal or even a bad concert. But it's like I think certain people maybe reach a certain level in their career or where with where they think that the small things don't matter anymore, but they do. They yeah. always matter. So that's something that and I've seen it from the opportunities I've been given to the way the musicians relate to me. I've been able to see consistently, you know, uh, it's not just like, oh, the orchestra thinks I'm cool. So they play well, you know, it's more than that. You have to find you have to show that you are worthy of this huge position because being a conductor is a huge responsibility. Um, I think Respe something that I've really learned is that people 
music is something that I respect more than it's something that I love. And that might be a very interesting thought to people because like I love music, but I respect what it takes to be a musician and what just the art of music in general. I like have reverence for it and respect for it more than I'm just like, oh, when I conduct, I'm just the happiest person on the planet. Like that's just not really it. Mm -hmm. It's like I do what I do because I just believe in like the baseline power of what it is and also i'm just so inspired by musicians like what it takes to become a musician and like the sacrifices people make to become musicians with no guarantee of any success and no guarantee if you get some success that you're going to get more and often not getting paid what they should be getting paid and risk of their livelihoods being taken away at any time like there's huge risks in becoming a musician. And I'm just so like moved by that, mm. that, you know, and even just my own, sometimes I feel like I do it because this is just all I have. This is, I've been doing this for so long. This is, I can't think of another reality where I'm not doing this, but you know, it's just so moving to me to see how people like, you know, they sacrifice a lot. I think a lot of people, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this, Ryan. Oh, it must be so great to do what you love for a living. It's like, it's so much more complicated than that. For sure. It's so much more complicated. The other one, too, is like, you're so talented. Oh. I mean, I get what they're saying. I right? hate talent, that. Talent is like, uh, it seems like a ubiquitous word, just meaning like you're very good at what you do or like you're, you know, you excel at what you do. But yeah, it's like you have no idea <laughs> like what went into this thing that you see at this stage right now. 100%. We have a young artist competition here, the lowest Picard competition. And every year, the the winners of the different categories would play for these, these donors at a luncheon. And, you know, I was the last to speak to announce the general winner. And I, everyone just talked about how talented they were. And I just went on a little bit of a rant <laughs> about how talent is not what we should be applauding here. <laughs> we should be applauding the fact that these kids are giving up their childhoods to pursue a career. Wow, good for you. You know, like, and, you know. <laughs> good for you. Yeah, they're talented, but talent, you know. Well, and it's like, have you read the book Mindset by Carol Dweck? I will now. Yeah, it's an incredible book. It's kind of, I mean, it's, I had already been thinking, you, when you read it, you'll be like, oh yeah, this all makes perfect sense. But it get, it's given language to something I think is insanely important. And like, when you tell someone they're talented, you like invalidate the fact that all the hard work happened. And it just boils down to like, that almost that like, do you have it or do you not conversation? Right. Which is Ver so not. Yeah. Versus like, if you say you must have worked really hard for this, it validates the work and shows that like, like there's a correlation between like I can do this and I can keep getting better. Like I can keep doing right. it. And I think when you, especially with children, like you can send, I'm really careful now after reading that book, I'm very careful how I encourage my children. Like uh, Alita will do well on a test and I'll say like, all your hard work paid off. Like I don't say like, you're so smart because she might think, okay, well I'm smart because I can do this and that's why I have value. Right. But rather I worked hard and there was this, and then I'm always careful to say next, like, but you know that like if you don't have a ton of time to study and you don't do as well on the next test, it's like it makes sense why you, you know, like basically trying to draw a correlation between if I'm prepared and I do well, that makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. And certainly talents and skills are should be encouraged because it makes sense to 
you know, explore things that come naturally to you. Sure. However, like there are a lot of things that come naturally to me that have nothing, no interest. Yeah. You know, like for example, how I'm built. Everyone's like, oh, you must have been a football player. I'd rather <laughs> die than play football. I've never stepped foot on a football field except for marching band. Yeah, I can't catch a ball. And like, I'm sure if someone tackled me once, I would just start crying. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like for sure, I can put on muscle super easily. I would I do not want to be muscly. Yeah, yeah, I dream of being like the skinniest person alive. I, it's like it's just it's just an example yeah, of absolutely. like things that are just genetically okay whatever <clears throat> the grass is always greener right of course yeah so so yeah and then um uh, yeah so next if you're listening to this you know applaud your your friend's preparation or whatever um speaking oh my god i had very little speaking experience before this whether it's assistant any kind of conductor but especially music director Talking about what we do is the most important thing you do because orchestras can't exist without money. Money comes from lots of sources, but a lot of times it's from donors. Donors give because of a personal connection. Personal connections are built through conversations. I mean, that's hyper simplistic, but it's what it is. So, you know, it behooves anyone who wants to be a musician to work on how they talk about um, what we do and try to make it, I don't like the word accessible, but like don't downplay like the, the, um, how profound what we do is for you personally. And, you know, when <clears throat> I'll just jump to another point, uh, I've really learned from being in this community, you know, Birmingham is a mid-sized city. Uh, we have a orchestra with a budget of $6.8 million. It used to be more when I came, but that's about where it is. I'm just trying to give people some context. So people aren't just giving because it's what they should do. There's a personal connection. So I really think that music is about people and their stories. So the people who play it and why they play it and the people who write it and why they wrote it and the people who listen to it and consume it and why they do those things. Um, and we are way too anonymous as a culture in general, like, you know, uh, not knowing who we are, who, who, not knowing the people in our communities, but also just, you know, not giving like musicians. I, I want the musicians life stories to be part of the orchestra's narrative. And I want to highlight donors and why they give to be part of the narrative and the identity, right? Uh, you, the conductor often gets uh, platforms to share that kind of stuff. But I think, that is the very bare minimum, you know, um, we could be doing. And I know that you with with your video series for the Alabama Symphony Musicians, mm -hmm. you do a lot of that and you interview people about why they do what they do. And I think that that is the future, right? Like people should know who the people in the orchestra are, their background, where they're from, why they came to Birmingham, why they love Birmingham or wherever. I mean, this can apply to any orchestra. But the what I'm trying to say about contextualizing it is that the culture here is not arts oriented. It's sports. Sure. And then maybe religion is second in terms of community building. Sure. People sure. bond over what team they like and they bond over what church they go to. Uh, not what was the best performance they heard this week um, for it. I'm generalizing. There are exceptions, but um, it, it, so it it behooves us to acknowledge that it's a hard sell. The sure. orchestra is a hard sell in this community. Um, 
but that doesn't mean it's impossible. We just need to find a way to communicate it. And I think too, this is one of my beliefs is that stopping. If there is comparison of us versus other orchestras, we may aspire to be like to stop doing that. Yes. And to start asking just what are we in our community? 100%. I mean, of course, everybody, you know, well, first of all, just say, you know, Simon Rattle. I don't know if he originated it, but I heard him say in an interview this joke about how do you make a musician start complaining? Give them a job. And how do you make them complain more? Give them a better job. Nice. So I, I think <laughs> as artists, we are wired to be idealistic. That's how you get good. You play your instrument and you're like, that's not how it should be. Yeah, it should be better. So that's how your brain is wired. You can't make it in this industry if you don't have that muscle to be idealistic, right? But, you know, if you say, oh, well, we should be like the Boston Symphony where, you know, 100 people give us $100 million all the time and we only play blah, 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 blah. Newsflash, I don't know if you'd like to play in the Boston Symphony. Their schedule is pretty rough. Yeah, right. I mean... No one ever talks about that part of it. Yeah, it's pretty rough. And how many of them have a balanced personal life and yada, 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 yada. I mean, there's no perfect situation, right? Mm. So, but yeah, who, what is our, who are we? Who is in our community? What do they want? And if you're not giving them that half the time, like, I don't really know what you want me to say. Right. You know what I mean? I agree. You're not going to sell wool sweaters in Egypt. Very much so. It doesn't make sense, right? And then you're like, oh, no one will buy our products. It's like, well, they're not, it's not what they need. Yeah. It's not what they want. You know what I mean? If you could sell a sweater that looked like a sweater but actually kept you really cool, bing, done. Yeah. You got it. So again, I don't have all the answers and I'm frankly not in charge. No one's asking me. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You ask me, musicians ask me, but no one's really asking me, what direction do you think we should be going in? So, I mean, and that's fine. Like, our management's very busy. They have their their uh, priorities. It's fine. I'm outgoing. It's cool. But, you know, yeah. I just think also, I think for the health of our, of like everything ever, just the ability to ask the question is important. Like, I feel like sometimes, you know, I feel like I've asked questions that people are like, you know, not basically like you asking that question shows a fundamental non-understanding of how things work here almost. Yep. And so instead of just like being able to ask the question and people saying, well, this is why maybe that won't work. It's like I have been seen as like, it's like a problem for me to ask that question. And I have examples, but I don't want to share them, at least yeah, I here. understand. But um, at any rate, I just think, yeah, being able to ask the question, why don't we do things a certain way? Or like, what do we think about this or that? And like that pool of meaning idea, right? Just being able to put it in there and see like what people think and valuing that I think is the mark of any um, organization that is able to make any pivots and find ways to meet the needs of the their community. Absolutely. Well, it all comes back to fear, right? Because anytime you innovate, there's a chance that it's not going to work, gonna work yeah. or right away. We had a concert series when I came here that wasn't, you know, blockbuster the first year and then it was deemed not a good idea. Yeah, it's like, I mean, we don't have to tell people on this podcast that sometimes it takes a minute for sure. So anyway, um, yeah, and then just the last thing is just, you know, the power of education. I've just through my role with the youth orchestra. I have just seen so many kids 
buy into music as if it's not going to be their career, it's going to be the way to pay for college or it's going to be a huge part of their life. They're going to double major, whatever. And when I first met them, I would have thought there's absolutely no way that this person is going to be pursuing music and just to see it's not all of them, but maybe 10 or 12 of them like their whole life is changed by the focus that music brings them. And, you know, again, it's 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 about education on all levels. Um, and I think exposure is the easiest way to educate somebody, just exposing them to what it is, putting what the thing is that you want people to know about in a context and in a place and a space that is already familiar to them and letting them experience it. You don't have to get on the this microphone and give a speech and a lecture. It's not about that. It's just about like sharing and with the intent to inspire and enrich people's lives. I think education is not just, you know, teaching people stuff. Yeah. So, and I, it, and also I've just seen how a lot of those students in the youth orchestra, their families have become subscribers or they just attend concerts regularly and they wouldn't have done that otherwise. And, you know, but you know, the kids who have really been able to make a mark on like their lives are different now. Yeah. And it's like, we could be doing that all arts organizations everywhere could be having more of that of an, of an impact, you know, no one, you know, I always think about this on my deathbed. If I have, you know, 20 Deutsche gramophone recordings and made a bunch of money, like eh, it's great to have an artistic legacy, but wouldn't you want to help people and change their lives and, you know, make a lasting impact beyond that, that like keeps paying it forward. Mm -hmm. Cause I don't really know if, you're a famous maestro and you record a lot of pieces and you conduct a lot of concerts. If you personally are like, if you have a legacy that's actually going to like better the future. Yeah. Yeah. Cause having a great recording doesn't, I mean, I guess it, it's part of the great tradition of music, but it doesn't give kids more instruments or, you know, convince the government to support orchestras. If, if the government gave every orchestra $1 million every year, that would be a total game changer Yeah, right. for what we could do for our communities, for how we could compensate our musicians. Yeah. You know, that's not even that much money in the scheme of, you know, what they spend, what they yeah. spend. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I agree with you. It's that ripple effect. I'm pretty sure it's the slight edge that talked about that ripple effect where it's like, you know, it seems like it could be insignificant, but that person could affect somebody's life and that person could affect. And then you just compound that over a lot of years. And the influence you may have had just in one person's life could make a big difference in some community some someday and that sort of even living up to that ideal whether you know whether or not you actually know what's going to happen just living up to that ideal can be very right. a very cool thing so and it, it, it circles back to the, that point i made about all of this is about people mm -hmm. people 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 you know and and so if you don't like people the arts is probably not for you or you should go write about it and be an academic because people are who make it people are who consume it and if you're not interested in both of those people, those groups of people, like, I don't want to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you have to be really interested. Doesn't mean that's the only interest you have. But, you know, I think this next generation of conductors, of music directors, is going to be a lot more down to earth and connected to their audiences. And this idea, it's already fading away, but this idea of a, the maestro is this like, you know, omniscient magical being, which is all BS, um, is going to go away. And it totally should. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be a great artist and have standards and like work your absolute hardest to serve the music of the musicians and the audience. But you know, this specialness. Yeah. Agreed. I, I think the specialness used to bring in 
donors and money like, oh, we want to be associated with this special person who's the maestro, the conductor. And now I think that doesn't land. I think you you can be special by being inclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by being someone that people can actually relate to. You know, I started writing a cover letter this year that is extremely honest. And now I'm getting a lot more responses, especially for music director jobs. I'm like my background and what I think about the role of an orchestra in a community. Like, and that's just really honest. I, I, I gave, gave myself a job to write a letter that I, I wouldn't care what anybody thought about it. Sure. And then I sent that letter in and interesting started working. Well, I appreciate your willingness to share here with me and my audience. Of course. I can, I, I can speak for myself. It's been it's been great to have you with this organization. I think you've been a positive impact for sure. It's been awesome to see you just like grow in the role and the the confidence that you have. I mean, you've always been able to step up there with confidence because you have to, but just watching you, knowing how hard you work and sort of watching you be able to take on bigger opportunities and just watch you just do it, you know, as if it's not some special thing, but rather it's just like you're another conductor that I see, if that makes sense. Like, that's right. so cool that it's um, to see, just to watch you do that. And I have nothing but full confidence that you're just going to continue that trajectory. And Jacksonville sounds like it will offer you just that many more opportunities to continue growing and building and understanding. And I think you deserve that. And I think you're going to do a great job with it. And so I'm just glad we could sort of, like you said, it's it's cool to bookend your time bookend, here with yeah. this. Yeah. So I appreciate all the work you've done for our organization. And I... I just wanted to say that. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. And I appreciate that. And yeah, I'm going to miss everybody here, you know, and I think I'll be back. I think I've already heard that there might be some plans to bring me back for something. So I hope so. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's good. The biggest compliment a conductor can get is from a musician. Mm. So that works for me. (laughs) Well, I guess to finish this out, um, if people are interested in, you know, knowing more about you or getting in contact, maybe they resonated with some part of this, or, you know, I know you coach conductors and things. If they want to get in touch with you to do any of that kind of stuff, how could people find you? The easiest way is through Instagram. I'm at conductor K Fitz because it's Kevin Fitzgerald K Fitz, which is my nickname in middle school. Um, and then uh, my email is the same conductor K Fitz at Gmail. And my website is uh, Kevin Fitzgerald conductor dot com because Kevin Fitzgerald dot com was ten thousand dollars. Oh my god! Because there's a famous vet who uh. was on Animal Planet <laughs> in the two, early two thousands who has that name. That's, so um, wow. yeah, uh, can't afford that one yet. <laughs> That's amazing. So check Kevin out there if you are interested. I know that obviously you can tell uh, very personable, and I'm sure would enjoy hearing from people and and connecting. So I like people. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you need to get in touch with me for any reason, you can do it on that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or had any feelings at all whatsoever, I'd appreciate it if you left a rating and a review on iTunes. And don't forget to share this episode on social media. Kevin, thank you one more time for joining me. This has been awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. You can check out Brandon's work on epiphanyrecordingstudio.com. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>